Well, hey there, Celebration Center. My name is Aaron, and I am so grateful to be uh, part of your church service today. In fact, I want to take this moment to, to actually thank you as a church for what you have meant to my life. You may not even know how much you have meant to my life, but you really have uh, changed my life, changed the, the life of my wife, Paula, in very significant ways uh, because of this. Uh, Celebration Church was one of the first churches uh, to, to really be a church plant in our region. It really created a movement of church planting among open Bible churches in our region. There wasn't a lot of that going on when Celebration Center was planted, but thanks to the visionary leadership of Pastor Chris and Pastor Lisa, uh, that took place. And because of that, as an outflow of that, other churches started to take notice and go, oh, you, you can plant churches. That's a thing that happens, and it's an effective thing and an amazing way to reach people. And one of the churches that, that caught that vision was a church in Springfield, Oregon. And they decided, we want to plant churches too. And so their first church plant, they sent out their youth pastors to go plant a great church. But they needed a youth pastor at that point. Well, that's when they called us. And we got to come back to Oregon and be youth pastors there. And we were eventually then sent out by that same church because it had this, this DNA now of, of planting churches. And we were sent out to plant our first church in my hometown of Redmond, Oregon. And so we have since planted an, another church. We're here in Eugene. In fact, we're kind of replanting our church right now. So I guess we planted roughly two and a half churches since then. But church planting has become such a huge part of our lives. And that really points back to what you folks have done. And so I'm so grateful to you for that. I just want to thank you for that and also for being an example of a church that is generous, that is gracious, that is always thinking about the needs of your community first before anything else. Um, that even as you've sent out churches from your church, an amazing thing, and you've modeled that. And so much of, of what I've wanted to do in church planting and the heart that I've wanted to share with the community I've, I've done so by watching what you have done. And so I, I just wanted to thank you. I, I give you honor. And I am um, truly honored to be considered a friend of Celebration Church. So with that, I thought it would be really good for us, um, knowing that we don't really want to repeat 2020, I thought it would be great for us to talk about what the future looks like talk about vision, our vision for 2021, and what would be the heart that Jesus would want to give us regarding our steps forward. I think that is a key for us today, and so that's where we're going to launch our message. Now, this is important because among the most challenging things in this time has been coming to grips with the fact that there is a new normal that we're living in, whether it be masks and mandates, uh, political corruption, fights for religious rights. This is the landscape we all find ourselves in. And I think each of us would recognize that things seem to be moving. They, they seem to be changing. And, and the great challenge is, is that there's this pull for all of us, I think, to try to, to get back to the way things were before. You know, remember those days back a year and a half ago? They were, those things were comfortable and those things that were familiar and they were safe. Can we please just go back to how it was? Uh, th those are the ways we knew how to be, right? We knew how to relate to one another. And yet now everything's all different. And, and so I totally understand that desire. But I think it would be wise for us not to spend our lives pining for yesterday, but instead spend our lives trusting Jesus 
for tomorrow. See, Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something new in, in and through all that we are walking through. And we could choose to fight that, trying to hold on to everything that we think we've lost. Or we could embrace Jesus, holding on to him for what he wants to give us. See, this is not the first time that God has brought his people into a new normal. In fact, it really is the pattern of church history that God remakes and refines his church, and he usually does so through difficulty and suffering. God challenges us. God stretches us beyond our routines. God moves us beyond patterns that we've fallen into that can actually have a lot to do with our comfort, and they can have little to do with God's call. And it's one of those new normal moments from Jesus that I want to draw us back to today with a passage that I believe is really the heartbeat of God's church. It's the heartbeat for every church, and it certainly should be the heartbeat for our churches. And the message it speaks reveals what must be in our lives if we are to operate with a heart that changes us and ultimately changes the world. It's a message that I feel we've got to hear on a very regular basis because it was really Jesus calling his followers to live in a new normal, namely to live like him in this world. And it's a life not focused on our comfort, but instead it's focused on God's mission that we would choose to live incarnationally. Bringing Jesus to our world. That's what it means to live incarnationally. And I think to some extent, we in the church, we enter this realm at a deficit. Meaning, people have heard the church makes lots of statements, you know, have lots of opinions at times like this, and maybe express things that seem to elevate the church's needs above the needs of others. But the less common message from the church to our world is the church that shows up and gets its hands dirty, that lays down its needs for the needs of another. As Andy Stanley recently said, the church is at its best when it is thinking about the needs of others over the needs of itself. The desire of the church is to directly impact its community, in its concerns, in its fears, in its hurts, to meet them there in that broken and messy place. See, when it comes to reaching our community, we don't have to agree with all that people believe in order to love them with all of God's love. We get to simply allow that to be the starting line of relationship. And we know that to be true because that's exactly how Jesus meets us. But often, I think our stance has been to get very good at setting certain expectations for our neighbors while being less effective at building relationship with our neighbors. I've told this story before. There was a DEA officer, and he went to a ranch in Texas and he said, uh, found this grizzled farmer rancher there. He says, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. And the rancher said, well, that's fine. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. But uh, I just wouldn't go in that field over there. 
And that the DEA officer just exploded. Just, oh man, do you know who I am? Mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. You see this badge right here? This badge says I can go anywhere I want, anytime I want, no questions asked. That's what this badge does. The rancher said, that's fine. Went back to his chores. Short time later, the rancher heard screams coming from the field he had pointed to. And they saw that DEA officer running for his life, being chased by the rancher's enormous Santa Gertrudis bull. And every step that bull was getting closer, gaining ground, coming so close that this man would be gored terribly by the end. And at that, looking at this man, his terrified face as he ran across the field, the rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Show him your badge. <laughs> Here's the thing. Often Christians have come into town with a badge, but Jesus asks us to come into town with a bandage. That we refuse to posture ourselves as us and them, but we recognize it's simply just us. This must permeate our thinking because if it doesn't, our tendency will be to become more disconnected from our communities, more aloof to their real needs, more tone deaf to what's really going on. So what does it look like to change all of that? Well, in short, it looks like loving our neighbor. That we are called to live incarnationally, bringing the love of Jesus to our neighbors. This is true when you're at church. This is true when you go home. This is true at your workplace, at your school, at your gym, on your commute. It is an assignment that continues throughout our lives. And Jesus, to prove that, tells us a very well-known parable to illustrate the importance of that task. Now remember this about parables. They are an ideal story. Jesus wasn't necessarily retelling a story for accuracy. He was creating a story from scratch to illustrate a truth. So every part of that story is there for a reason. We'll see this story in Luke chapter 10. It's a familiar story. It is the story of the Good Samaritan. And the first truth I would love to point out from this passage would start here. Number one, that God's new normal includes a limitless love. God's new normal includes a limitless love. Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. Let's read it together right where you are. Big voices go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, this expert in the law, and he decides to test Jesus. Never really a good idea to test Jesus, but he does it anyway. And the question is this, what should I do 
to inherit eternal life. Now that's the big question, right? That's going for the juggler right there. And as is so often the case, Jesus answers that question with a question. He says, you're a lawyer. <laughs> How do you read the law? Well, he says, uh, love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus says, well, that's just great. You do that and you are good. You are golden. And then the lawyer reaches into his bag of lawyer tricks and goes, yes, uh, we agree on that one, but pray tell, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, as he is so often inclined to do, answers that question with a story. But before we get to that story, I want you to see something. It says the lawyer was desiring to justify himself, asking, who's my neighbor? That is a very revealing question. At best, it is a genuine theological conversation. Who am I to love? Who am I not to love? But at worst, and perhaps more likely, it is an effort for the lawyer to remove himself from God's mandate to love his neighbor. To find a way to make his religion serve his needs. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for a crack in the law, a way to get around the difficult and messy work of loving difficult and messy people, a way to keep his religion in kind of a safe little club surrounded by people who look like me and who think like me and who share my point of view on everything. That was the lawyer's first mistake, to think that somehow walking with the perfect God would absolve me from having to walk with imperfect people. In fact, just the opposite is true. Years ago, I had a friend of mine, his name's Rob. He said, hey, let, let's hang out today. You know, uh, let's, let's spend some time together. I said, cool, where do you want to hang out? He said, why don't you come, uh, we can hang out at my work and maybe we can go to lunch or something after that. I said, great, let's go hang out at your work. Remind me again where you work? He said, oh yeah, I work at the sewage plant. <laughs> cool, awesome, that, that sounds great. I'll be sure not to wear my best shoes. And so I went and visited Rob at the sewage plant, which is an amazing operation. If you haven't spent time at sewage plants, I would recommend it. I don't know why they don't take kids on field trips there. Just so cool, um, but loved going to the sewage plant and they had this whole shelf of all the like action figures that had come through that system. Quite an adventure I'm sure they had. And so they're up on a shelf, that was fun. And you're walking among these vats of sewage and different, different stages of processing. Some of them were, were looked like just totally processed, like it was water clear enough to drink, you would think. And then some of them are like, whoa, that's not processed at all. Like, wow, that guy really ate the corn. And, you know, someone should see a doctor. Those kinds of experiences. And so that was what we're walking among, because to walk with Rob at that time in his life meant walking among sewage, among the mess, because that was where Rob lived and worked. We forget that to walk with God is then to choose to walk among brokenness. Because that's what Jesus does. The assumption of the lawyer's question was flawed. The assumption was there must be some to whom God's love doesn't apply. Some to whom God's love doesn't reach. Some that God's love is not available to. 
So he says, I want you to, to define neighbor for me. Narrow the field because God certainly doesn't mean I'm supposed to love everybody. And yet John tells us that God so loved the world. Not God just so loved Christians or God just so loved Jews. God so loved all. Meaning God loves Muslims, yes. God loves Buddhists, yes. God loves terrorists, yes. God loves your annoying neighbor, yes. God loves atheists, yes. God so loves the world. His love includes all, it excludes none. Now, this doesn't guarantee people's love for God in return, but it does guarantee God's love for all people. Think of how, how Paul expresses it. I think it's so great in Romans 8, 38. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. Love is for all. Nothing separates us. But like this lawyer, we can find ourselves asking this question, God, you don't really expect me to love them, do you? They annoy me, or, or they hurt me, or they attacked me, or they disappointed me, or they frustrated me, or they offend me, or they're politically opposite of me. They are my enemy. And Jesus says, exactly. That's who I want you to love. Matthew 5, anyone can love their friends, but it takes God's love to love your enemy. That's why this conversation, it had to happen before anything else when it comes to our practice of this new normal. That until I understand that God loves everyone, I will continue to look for reasons why I don't have to. But if I realize that God's love is limitless, then it's possible for my love to be limitless as well. God's new normal includes a limitless love. That's the first thing. Here's the second. God's new normal includes a sacrificial compassion. Let's continue the passage. Uh, Luke 10, verse 30. Ready? Go. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Let's stop there. Let me give you just a little context. The Jericho-Jerusalem road was 15 miles of rough, remote, notoriously dangerous, hilly and cave-ridden terrain it made it very easy for thieves and robbers to operate on that road. And so this picture that Jesus is painting, it made perfect sense to the people who are listening to it. If you're going to get mugged, it's going to be on the Jerusalem-Jericho road. They knew it was a bad road. So he tells the story, robbers came, beat this guy, took his clothes, left him for dead, okay? But then we think he's starting to tell us the good news. 
The good news is, hey, but here comes a priest, right? Again, this made sense because priests, many priests lived in Jericho. They would be going to Jerusalem to fulfill their yearly priestly churchy duties. And of course, this must be the hero of the story now, right? It's a priest. And he's going to stop. And he's going to put this guy on his donkey because he had resources. And he's going to care because he's a good guy. He's God's person, right? But here's the problem. As a religious leader, he had some religious rules to follow. Uh, like in Judaism, if, if a priest got within six feet of a dead guy, they became unclean for the ceremonies. And it meant he couldn't do his priestly duties then. And so there would be an extra week of time being used to get ceremonially clean again, and it would cost money and time, and it would be a struggle. Now he could do that, but it would slow him down a lot. He would have to literally put the needs of that person on the side of the road above his personal need for church. Huh. That's a familiar question, isn't it, that many of us have been asking during COVID. Now, we look at the story, what does this guy do? What does this priest do? I mean, obviously we know he can't just, just leave the guy to die, can he? Well, he can, and he does. And sadly, that thinking is more common than we would like to admit. Let me tell you a secret that pastors don't like to talk about, and it's this. Sometimes the church thing can get in the way of the God thing. Now, don't get me wrong, I love church. And I, I love God's church. It is an amazing thing. But what church should do is inspire me to the actions of Christ, not replace them. That's what the incarnation is all about. My church should change me so that I can more effectively change my community. See, God wants each of us to find our place of ministry within our church community, but God also passionately desires that all of us would make a difference in our communities at large. That's the incarnation. And it requires this shift in priority. For these religious folks in this passage, church was super important to them. And yes, it should be, right? But if the choice had to be made between doing my normal church life and showing love to the one outside it, we see here the choice was clear. Love the outsider first. Love them above myself. Put their needs above my own. See, what God does in this place known as church, must inspire me to make a difference in that place known as the world. To think others first, not me first. To actually see people and care, even the messy ones. Why? Because we understand that God can bring amazing good out of incredible bad. See, I, I think we have a very skewed understanding of suffering in America. 
In America, we, we just try to avoid suffering at all costs, no matter what, make sure we don't suffer. And we have insurance to make sure we don't suffer. And we have lawyers to make sure we don't suffer. Just make sure everything is squishy and padded and nobody ever gets hurt. I mean, look at our cars, you know, right now cars have airbags and they have car seats and they have backup cameras and things that beep if you cross the lane. It's amazing. But remember growing up with, with our cars back then, we didn't have that. We had station wagons, and you just threw the kids in the back of the station wagon, like 12 kids just in the back. They don't even have seats. You're just on, on the carpet, right? And if they tapped the brakes, you would hit your head on this metal bar that went across the seat in front of you, bang, every time. And that's how we grew up. We all have brain damage because of it, but that's how we did it. It was suffering. Think of playgrounds right now. They have, playgrounds have rubber, rubberized surfaces. They have smooth plastic slides. What did we have growing up? Our playgrounds were made of blacktop, asphalt, everywhere, as far as I could see. And the slides were metal, metal. On a hot day, metal, that's what we did. It's different now. We make sure now that everything is comfortable, everything is not sharp, everything is soft, that nothing bad happens because life must be easy. Our culture is neurotically compelled to eliminate all suffering, to eliminate difficulty in all of its forms. Why? Because our world doesn't understand the value of hard things, making us blind to this truth, that with God, a bad thing can become a good thing. Here in this passage, we see a bad thing a person who is wounded, a person who is afraid and isolated. That may sound familiar to you. There are many folks that feel that way right now. Yet that bad thing was this chance to see Christ do a good thing. That bad thing was a chance to see God show up and do a good thing. But all the priests saw was that someone was going to keep them from church. Yeah, they saw with their eyes but Christ followers learn to see with God's heart. See, we must allow our relationship with God to interrupt our religion about God because God's new normal includes a sacrificial compassion. He's calling us to that. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. God's new normal includes an innovative Solution. Check this. Luke chapter 10, 33 to 36. Let's read it. Big voices go. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now again, remember, a parable is an ideal story. Every detail matters. So, Jesus tells this story. Who does Jesus make the hero. Who does Jesus make the good guy? The knight in shining armor. Here it is. Ba -ba -ba -ba. It's the Samaritan. Wait. Samaritans were despised. <laughs> in the first century, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. 
They were known as the stupid people. This Samaritan did what the so-called smart folks wouldn't do. The Samaritan really saw that person on the side of the road. They saw like God does. They had compassion like God does. They took action like God does. The Samaritan bound up his wounds, perhaps even with his own garment. He poured on oil and wine, which was the most advanced first aid of the day. He puts him on his donkey and takes him to the inn. Now that in itself is courageous for this reason. When a Samaritan rode into town with an incapacitated and beat up man on his donkey, they weren't thinking, wow, what a nice Samaritan. You know what they were thinking? They were thinking that Samaritan did it. That Samaritan beat that guy up, okay? The only parallel I can make would be a, of a Native American in the 1800s uh, having a cowboy across his Appaloosa with two arrows sticking out of his back and him walking that cowboy into Dodge City. That everyone is thinking that person did it. They did it. So at personal risk, the Samaritan takes this man to the inn. At personal cost, he pays the equivalent of $132 to the innkeeper. And with personal responsibility, he vows to return and take care of any additional needs. So, what does it look like to love my neighbor? Here's what it looks like. Loving my neighbor requires personal risk, personal cost, and personal responsibility. We must understand this. I can love my neighbor, but I can't love yours. Meaning, I can love the person that God has put in my path, but I don't have access to the one that's in your path. Only you do. And God's asking, how are you going to do it? See, every church that, that we've planted has had within it this idea of, of being Jesus in our community, that that has been a prime directive for us. Now, when we were in Redmond, planting there, we built our church really through our neighborhood, through sprinkler systems. Like we had this new uh, house and, uh, and it was a new neighborhood, so all the homes were new. And so nobody had their back sprinkler systems in. And I, I know a little bit about doing that. So I just helped people put in their sprinkler systems and put up fences, although I'm not good at fences, but I helped. And, and so we would become friends. And so that's how we connected, just one family at a time. And there was a season at our church where eight families just in that block were a part of our church. In fact, we would walk to church together because it was at a school down the street. It was like a cult. We just walked through the street, you know, all together on our way to church. And that was how we did it because it was just about meeting them where they were at. How can we be Jesus in our neighborhood? Now, the same question was the one we asked when we came to Eugene. Bigger town, different culture. How are we going to show God's love to this town? And so what we ended up doing was a Christmas drive-in light show. And we started that uh, years ago as one of the first things we did as a church. Uh, when we started out, it out, it was just hundreds of people that came through. Now thousands of people come through it. We do it at the fairgrounds. It is a huge event. 
The question is, why do we do it? Here's why. For the folks that come and say, I've lost my job through COVID. I wasn't sure what I would be able to give my kids for Christmas, but I know I can give them this. That's why we do it. Is there risk in doing events like that? Yes. Are there misunderstandings? You bet. Is there cost? Absolutely. Every year the price goes up. But this is our responsibility because they're on our robe. These are innovative solutions, meaning we don't reach new people with old methods because if that was true, they would have been reached by now. No, we reach new people with new methods. The message is the same. The method must change. And it changes when we ask God to open our eyes and see who's on our road. I was talking with my, my youngest son, Isaac, the other day. And we were talking about a celebrity that was getting some flack. Uh, they, they were going through some stuff and they were getting some flack uh, and some ridicule, sadly, a lot of it from Christians. And to my knowledge, these folks aren't uh, Christ followers and probably in part because of how Christians have responded to them. And I remember talking about that person and I loved the response of my son. It was, it was just this. He said, you know what we need to do? We need to find a way to love them. I mean, isn't that what should be our response whenever we encounter a person, no matter where they are in their life, is I want to find a way to love you. That should be the first thing that comes out of us. Not ridicule, not making fun, not putting them in some box. It's I need to find a way to love you. For every person, that we would find a way to love them, not just with our love, but with God's love. Remember, we're told that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That being true, perhaps we should approach people the same way. Let's find a way to love people, to love messy people. And the good, is, the good news is that no matter who you are, God wants to use you to do that. So all of us can start small, but we must start now. I'll wrap up with this. Jesus sort of ties this great little bow on this story. He asked the lawyer, so who was the good neighbor? And the lawyer's response is, well, I guess it was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. It's a challenge to that lawyer. It's also a challenge to us. Would we do likewise? And if I could encourage you in this, as we emerge, all of us, into this new normal, would you keep on allowing your relationship with Jesus to be lived out, to be made incarnate in your world? And that's going to include a limitless love, a sacrificial compassion, and innovative solutions to reach new people. That's how we walk in God's new normal. And if we do so, our world will see Jesus walking among them because his life is being shared through you. Let's pray.